A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm senior editor Alona Ferber. On today's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking back at the 2010s, the figures, events and politics that defined this decade, and asking, why did the left's aspirations for revolution during the 2010s fall short? It was a decade that many hoped would usher in a new era of leftist revolutions. Yet as we look back, the question looms large. What went wrong? I was joined by Will Davies, writer and professor in political economy at Goldsmiths, University of London, who wrote an essay for The New Statesman published in January titled The 2010s, A Decade of Revolutionaries Without a Revolution. Will's essay opens with a description of Russell Brand's evolution from lewd celebrity figure to left-wing activist and eventually now online conspiracy theorist. But how did Brand's shifting roles reflect broader changes in the political and cultural landscape of this period? I guess the first thing to say about Brand is that anything we say about him in retrospect has now been overshadowed by the allegations of the last six months or so. And that, um, you know, has to be has to be recognised. And I think that uh, we have to be cautious in, in, in how we how we handle his his legacy in light of that. Um, I think that the interesting thing about Brand to me, in the, when thinking particularly about this conjuncture of um, the post-financial crisis period, what broadly um, you could look at as a, as, a, as a period that lasted between the collapse of Lehman Brothers in the autumn of 2008 and the initial lockdowns related to COVID-19 in early 2020, um, he, you know, we know he became famous through things like Big Brother. He was a he was a, a TV celebrity. I mean, in some ways, you know, a lot of the, the the figures who ended up dominating the 2010s in politics had had careers in areas such as the media. And you think of someone like Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, has a similar sort of charisma, um, similar um, kind of status within the media as someone who simply just sort of had to be himself and and be witty and uh, and somehow sort of drew attention towards himself. And that was obviously the brand pre-2008 brand. I think that the interesting thing about that decade, and, and this is why I, I used brand to try and uh, um, encapsulate something, was that one of the reasons he first uh, gained attention as a political figure was with the uh, with his uh, interview with Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, in which he uh, said, really, there's no point in voting. But is it true you don't even vote? Yeah, no, I don't vote. Well, how do you have any authorities to talk about politics then? Well, I don't uh, get my authority from this pre-existing paradigm, which is quite narrow and only serves a few people. I look elsewhere for alternatives that might be of service to humanity. Alternate means, alternate political systems. 
Uh, they being? Well, I've not invented it yet, Jeremy. Statistically, this wasn't actually a particularly unusual thing to, well, certainly to do. Um, I mean, turnouts in general elections had been falling um, since 1997. Uh, the 2001 election was uh, historically low uh, turnout. So you could say that, you know, roughly a third of the uh, electorate had already made up their minds that it wasn't worth voting by the time that, that Brand gave that interview uh, with Paxman. Um but I think that what the reason it drew so much attention was that he was expressing something about the failings of representative democracy, the limits of uh, of, of, of the the electoral system that suddenly seemed kind of charismatic, uh, mobilizing, energizing in certain ways. And then he said, you know, in the wake of that interview, he said, really, you know, the only thing that will work right now is a revolution. And again, you know, looking back on it, in some ways, it looks rather kind of embarrassing that this would have been seen as uh, such a, um, a kind of an exciting when it's Andrew thing to say. And um, I mean, the New Statesman has its own <laughs> kind of role in this. In 2013, the New Statesman invited Russell Brand to guest edit an issue of the magazine. This was called The Revolution Issue. And then he wrote a book called Revolution, which was a big bestseller. Um, and so I suppose what the, the language of revolution hadn't been used very much um, uh, over the over the kind of pre-financial crisis era. But in particular, this sort of recognition that there was a gap between what the people in the kind of populist jargon uh, might want or need and what was expressed by the voting system was suddenly gaining this kind of extremely um, uh, charismatic expression. And, and of course, we then saw all sorts of manifestations of that over subsequent years via Brexit and you know, Corbynism and, and that sort of thing. But I think that, you know, he saw which way the wind was blowing, let's say. But this was also a class issue. In his essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, writer and cultural theorist Mark Fisher wrote, For some of us, Brand's forensic takedown of Paxman was intensely moving, miraculous. I couldn't remember the last time a person from a working class background had been given the space to so consummately destroy a class superior using intelligence and reason. Yeah, I mean the 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 Mark Fisher essay, which which became notorious, and and um, I think something that I think in many ways, whether he regretted it, it certainly led to a lot of difficult um, relationships in, in in various areas, and it's also then got picked up by people. I think that that Mark Fisher would have been appalled by as sort of you know mm. a critique of of, of of cancel culture and 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 wokeism and this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean in, in the essay, the uh, exiting the vampire's castle, uh, he celebrated uh, Russell Brand as being this example of someone who was proudly working class proclaiming various truths that some uh, elite cartel of both which engulfs both the media and Westminster had previously shut out in various ways uh, and that was something which 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 Mark Fisher was arguing uh, as you say on, on on a class basis that this was uh, giving voice to something that previously had had been there, but it had been silent. And it's true that when you, if you're thinking about um, disengagement from from democracy, the 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 people who were withdrawing from the um, voting system from elections over previous years and decades tended to be the young and the working class. But Mark Fisher wasn't the only figure on the left to embrace Brand and Brand's style of politics in the 2010s. 
He was a prominent voice at protest. How much did you pay for your place? It's rented. But so, but like, uh, was it? yeah. But like, uh, no, well, no. What, what kind of rent are you paying? Oh, I'm not interested in talking to you about my rent, mate. I'm here to, I'm here to support a very, very important campaign. And you, as a member of the media, have an important duty. This is an issue that affects the 100%. Because none of us can be happy as long as any of us are treated with discrimination. As long as any of us suffer from inequality. And during the 2015 election, Labour leader Ed Miliband took part in a major interview with Brand on his YouTube channel, The Trues. I decided that some people were saying the campaign was too boring, so I thought I'd make it more interesting. Uh, and, but, but, the, uh, but the serious point to this is as follows. There are millions of people in our country who are not watching this election, who are not listening to this election, and who think voting doesn't make a difference. And Russell Brand is one of the people who said in the past that voting doesn't make a difference. Now, I profoundly disagree with that. And I'm going to go anywhere and talk to anyone to take that message out to people about how we can change this country so it works for working people again. What motivated the left to have this association with Brand? I mean, we know that if we go back to that kind of, the, I guess, the first half of the 2010s, so you've got you know the coalition winning power in, in May 2010, introducing an austerity uh, programme. You've got the the protests against tuition fees uh, happening at the at the end of that at the end of that year, and then the, those fees kicked in a couple of years later. You you had this kind of um, a drastic kind of delimiting of, of what was considered possible. I mean, the other important expression which happened around about then was I mean Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, uh, which I think was published in 2009. It became a, a, a book that many people. It was it was it was short. It was very readable. It was very um, kind of you know it, it brought into questions the affective state of, of neoliberalism in, in relation to his own depression and 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 some of the cultural manifestations of, of of sort of a depressive culture, which says that the future has to be exactly the same or worse than the present, um, and that was what you know so much of of Marx. Um, writing uh, over that period was about. Uh, I, I think that um, you know th- th- there was clearly what what partly was being mobilised there was a was a generational phenomenon, and I think that's partly what Mark Fisher um, helped to give some voice to. But I think it also, in different ways, it was partly the brand we call it a coalition, but certainly the kind of moment of excitement that here was um, all sorts of people that felt that they didn't really have any kind of voice at all. Um, and that, of course, the, you know, the, the mechanism of the mainstream media and mainstream politics were uh, not serving them in various ways. Now, one of the crucial ingredients in that was that in the past, if there were various people who, who, who felt that they had no means of expressing their alienation from the mainstream media or mainstream politics, other than becoming pamphleteers, which, of course, you know, some people did via kind of anarchist book fairs and that kind of thing, or writing letters to to the newspaper, you didn't really have any other media with which to express that alienation. Social media, which came of age during this period. I mean, I, you know, I think I, I think I got a Facebook account in two thousand seven and a smartphone mm. in two thousand ten. So it was round about the time. You're of the, an early adopter. Well, I don't relatively. know. Relatively, I suppose. But I think 2010 was the big turning point with phones, with smartphones. And I think the big platforms were, social media platforms were were round about. I think Twitter was a few years later. But I mean, you know, what they did and do so kind of with, with, with such unique capacity is to give voice to the discrepancy between the account of the world as given by the mainstream, in inverted commas, and how the mainstream feels to millions of people. Um, and that's something which, you know, various 
anthropologists and theorists and ethnographers and sociologists have, have been interested in that for a long time. But the idea that people themselves are able to basically mobilize and say that system over there, uh, I mean, I guess anti-war protests, which I kind of come onto at the end of the essay as well, is, is it would be, you know, where, you know, if you think of the Iraq protests of, of 2003, one of the most kind of frequently seen uh, banners and signs in those protests is not in my name. And again, there's that idea of the, the, that what is done via the mediums, media and the institutions of representation of the mainstream, I, they do not reflect me in any way. I am outside of that um, system of, of representation. And that's what I think social media does so powerfully. It's what Brand was picking up on. I think Ed Miliband sort of dabbled with it in 2015 because I think he thought it might win him some crucial votes for that election, which we know he he ultimately, although relatively narrowly, lost. Will alluded there to those early heady days of social media when possibility and opportunity were rife. But the scale of danger and misuse that we know today had not yet reared its head. The fact that the financial crash and the rise of social media and big tech occupy the same moment in history is not a coincidence. But what is the connection? When we look back historically on that on that period, the global financial crisis ran between sort of began in the summer of 2007. Uh, the banks were, were were being still sort of stabilised and bailed out over 2009, and then you get the austerity period coming to 2010. Um, I mean, we've already mentioned roughly what the sort of historical contours of the, the the kind of big tech moment were, but they were sort of around about that that period. I mean, one of the ways in which um, governments around the world, but I guess most importantly in this case, the United States government, responded to the global financial crisis was to basically try and sort of drown the financial system in extremely cheap credit through slashing interest rates to historically unprecedented uh, uh, low levels, but then also quantitative easing that was introduced to try and push interest rates down even further. The concept of quantitative easing emerged in the early 2000s when the Bank of Japan faced deflation and a stagnant economy. The primary goal of QE is to increase the supply of money in the economy and encourage lending and spending. By purchasing assets, the central bank, which in this case was the Bank of England in 2009, injects money into the financial system. What they can't do is ensure that the banks are actually lending to kind of productive entities such as, you know, manufacturing firms or new infrastructure projects or, you know, uh, wind farms or the sort of things which might actually have been kind of welcome uses for all of that very cheap credit over the 2010s. Um, so a lot of it ended up going into real estate and the price of housing and so on went up and that kind of thing. But this extremely uh, cheap credit uh, was crucial in the development of um, platform business models such as, you know, Uber and this sort of thing, who actually... Um, offered no profits whatsoever. Um, I mean, you know, indefinitely, basically. So one of the the way in which they 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 could approach their 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 finances was to effectively say, you know, we have this plan where we're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and everyone else is going to invest into us over time because it's obvious that the future sort of belongs to us. That the price of the shares that you're going to buy, uh, the the amount of money that we're going to uh, make financially, not necessarily through the the profit of of, of the business itself will be enough to, to pay you back. So um, this very, very cheap credit was enabled um, tech companies to grow without having to actually offer any profits in return. And I mean, Amazon, I can't remember exactly when Amazon first returned a profit, but it was able to attract vast uh, quantities of uh, equity investment um, from the, I guess, mid-1990s onwards. Uh, and the profits came much, much later than that. Now, that obviously wasn't during the period of this ultra-cheap credit and quantitative easing. But, I mean, one of the interesting features of platform business models is that um, 
in order to function, they have to get to a very, very large scale very quickly. You know, Uber wouldn't work if only a few people had it and only a few mm. there were only a few drivers or it was only in one place but not in another place. Part of the way it works is to get very, very big as quickly as it possibly can. And to do that, it needs very large amounts of capital. And it was a period, that period after the global financial crisis, when there was when when capital was was struggling to find good returns because interest rates were so low that you couldn't, you know, simply putting putting your money into a bank was not going to earn you returns. So all of these other forms of what a potentially riskier investment became more more rational to to engage in. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The convergence of these particular events led to the emergence of figures like Brand calling for a revolution. But it also led to the rise of the political term populist. How did populism become the word du jour and was it overused in describing everyone from Trump to Johnson to Duterte? I mean, within the, the scholarly literature, populism is a style of rhetoric, actually. It's a, it's a, it's a way of addressing, uh, a, a, a trying to um, construct a people in, the, in the, the, the kind of political theory of this by drawing a moralistic distinction between uh, the people who are considered to be kind of ordinary and decent, and the elite who are considered to be self-interested, corrupt, and and sort of alien or, or foreign in some way. And this has all sorts of manifestations in history, and and it has some, I think, you know, quite a lot of quite obvious anti-Semitic potential where it's been used in in, in various ways to to refer to you know certain uh, minorities who are you know the, acting in a conspiratorial manner and um, uh, exploiting the this ordinary nation. And I think that. Um, Styles of populist rhetoric. I mean, if you if you see it purely as a mode of rhetoric, you can spot it in nearly any political speech. In fact, I mean, you know, Thatcher was described mm. as a authoritarian populist by Stuart Hall in the early nineteen eighties. Blair, you know, when he when he described the forces of conservatism in in his famous conference speech, that was um, you know viewed as being kind of brilliant example of populist rhetoric because it basically lumped together. You know, the, the cleverly lumped together. I mean, he was kind of referring to simultaneously the kind of trade unions and kind of, I guess, you know, various other aspects of the establishment. But cleverly and not coincidentally, he was also referring to the name of his, the opposition party. So he was sort of lumping together various people who were sort of bad versus him mm. and everyone who was on the side of identity as good. So, so it was rhetoric. It, it works quite. You can see it in all sorts of ways. And this was something Hillary Clinton did less well with her basket of deplorable speech at a campaign fundraising event in 2016. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Right? The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. But that other basket of people are people who feel the government has let them down, the economy has let them down, Nobody cares about them. That was a speech she probably never expected to see light of day, I guess, which... Um, yes. But, um, yeah, and I don't think she ever thought they were the elite anyway. But, I mean, obviously, Clinton herself was a, was a kind of victim of, of populist kind of 
um, line drawing where, mm. you know, she, you know, her speeches for Goldman Sachs and her, you know, association with with Wall Street and Washington and Bill Clinton and so on was 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 just sort of, you know, damned her in, in many people's eyes. Um, I think what happened in the 2010s was that there were various um, startup parties uh, like Podemos and, and and Syriza and these sorts of parties that came along, and of course, you know, various manifestations of of Farage um, startup uh, activities, um, and you know, in a way, the appetite for populism, I suppose, in that instance, arose because people, many people, had, as Brand had expressed, had come to see the mainstream political parties themselves as the elite you know so that you know the 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 media are all part of it the mainstream political parties are all part of it curiously often big business and finance was not part of it which is partly why i think often you know left populism has struggled so much over this period is that i mean i mentioned that you know jeremy corbyn's 2019 um, manifesto launch was the speech was all about sort of you know that he was gun- he was gunning for these billionaires the fundamentals of why we put my name forward to be leader of the party was nothing to do with me, it was to do with the principles behind what we're about, which is that austerity has been meted out on the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society. They are the ones who paid the price of the banking crisis of 2008. All the time, the very richest in our society have had tax breaks, giveaways and tax havens. I tell you what, they're on borrowed time because the Labour government is coming to change things around. Again, an attempt at classic kind of populist rhetoric, which is like, we're all ordinary. The other thing which is, I think, worth saying about populist rhetoric, which in some ways makes it tricky terrain for the for the traditional left is that the people um within this political register are uh, not defined by class so it's not about the the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie as in a, as in a marxist sense the people would include the traditional proletariat working class but they would also include aspects of the the petty bourgeoisie and you know various other and you know right wing populism of course would also throw in um i don't know all sorts of other you know Donald kind of Trump, very, well, Donald, Donald Trump yeah you could have man. very yeah. rich people who who mm-hmm. who are sort of but but they still eat burgers and sort of you yeah. know kind of you, you'd have a beer with them sort of thing um so um so it's never mapped cleanly onto class divisions which has always made some um, parts of the left rather uncomfortable with it. What hold did Jeremy Corbyn's brand of populism have in the UK in the 2010s? Well, I mean, so first of all, there's, there's, there was the 2017 election, which was this kind of moment of, uh, which was one of the many m- events in that in that kind of second half of the decade, which people were just sort of like, what the hell just happened? I think people were were, were staggered by it, including people who were some of his most devout supporters. Um, so that demonstrated that there was, you know, in some ways, a, a, a style of politics where one isn't constantly looking over one's shoulder, worrying about how it's going to be represented, which I'm afraid is kind of what Keir Starmer is currently doing. I mean, you could mm. say it's working very well with his 20-point lead in the polls, but he's, you know, mm. everything he's doing is, is 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 with one eye on the on the press and on how the Conservatives are going to represent it. And in a way, I think Corbyn won some credit in that election for, for not being like that. And I think there's a, there's a certain respect, even people who disagree with someone think, well, actually, at least you know who you are and what you what you believe. And I think that um, was something that many populist uh, figures of that of that period won votes for. And again, I mean, I think Boris Johnson doesn't believe in anything, and I don't think he would. The whole image of him as the shopping trolley and mm. Cummings's um, uh, testimonies, 
says it all. But I think, nevertheless, I think people still felt they kind of knew that he was, you know, he was he wasn't just a politician kind of thing. I think Corbyn's. Um, I mean, you know, many people would say if you look at what was in those those the manifestos in 2017 and 2019, how radical was it really? I mean, there was it, it, it wasn't as fiscally radical as many people would um, have liked um, on the left. I mean, I think in some ways that I think what many people were were hungry for was someone who was going to stand up and morally denounce things um, and to say that, I mean, after all, the other, the interesting thing about, you know, what happened in the summer of 2015 was that Corbyn won that leadership election after Labour had adopted a policy of abstaining on the um, two-child cap on the welfare reform. So as soon as the Conservatives won the election that summer, the first thing they did was to go even harder mm-hmm. on cracking down on the on the uh, welfare payments to introduce the uh, two-child limit on um, uh, on child benefit, which to this day is a kind of monstrosity. Last week, the Resolution Foundation think tank released an analysis of the impact of the two-child limit and the benefit cap. They projected that by 2027-28, over half of children in larger families, that's families with three or more children, will be growing up in poverty. That um, that summer, they Osborne instantly came in with that policy and Corbyn was the only person to call it out. And I think there was a sense in which, you know, enough is enough. How long can we go on? We've now had sort of, you know, five or, you know, you could arguably sort of say seven years, if you if you included the sort of fallout from the financial crisis, of these um, uh, indefensible um, economic policies. Uh, and I think that partly the, the, the hunger for someone who will just simply sort of name certain things and 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 recite certain truths and of course you know obviously corbyn himself became um uh, came to prominence on the back of his 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 foreign policy positions not on the back of his domestic policy positions so of course you know someone who had developed a reputation for standing on platforms denouncing things mainly in relation to 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 to, to um defense policies and military interventions uh, you know had the kind of already had the sort of rhetorical kind of wherewithal mm. to go around saying well this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong corbyn's status in the 2010s transcended being a political figure he wasn't just the leader of the labor party but of a broader movement. And it's not difficult to draw comparisons between his rise to leadership with that of Russell Brand a few years earlier. In his essay, Will references the American journalist Vincent Bevan's book, If We Burn, a reported history of the mass protest decade. The vogue of horizontalism or leaderless democracy, which Bevan traces back to the American New Left and to anarchism, drew vast crowds into the streets and squares as an end in itself, quite aside from whatever demands such movements might or might not be able to express. So was Corbyn a political leader or celebrity? How did the absence of more traditional leadership for these movements impact their effectiveness? And what did they achieve? Many of the biggest mobilisations, as we're seeing right now in relation to Gaza, are um, mobilisations against violence, against war. Um, and I mean, it's relatively clear what the what the demand is in these instances for the violence to stop, um, and you know other, other things after that. But initially, what gets people onto the streets is, is the demand that things must cease immediately, or in the case of Iraq, I guess to to, to not proceed. Uh, but I think, you know, Corbynism in the background there was. People who had been thinking, going back really to to Tony Benn and some of the the, the people around Benn, like John Landsman and others, and um, and you know some of the kind of new left figures that had mobilised around, you know, in places like the, the Greater London Council. John McDonnell had been in the Greater London Council um, in the early nineteen eighties. But you know there was a lot of interest in forms of of direct democracy and momentum 
um, which was obviously the, the the body that was created alongside uh, Corbyn's successful uh, leadership bid in 2015, was the fruit of, of of several decades, really, of reflection about how could the left move beyond both a kind of parliamentarianism, but also um, kind of, you know, being mediated by the trade unions um, to think about, you know, what would be the basis of this, uh, of a sort of almost a sort of permanent campaign, I suppose. But there was there was quite a lot of thinking going on in the early 2010s by people like Maurice Glassman and Mark Steers and um, uh, Jonathan Rutherford and people like that, who were interested in trying to think about kind of, you know, how do local communities start to kind of um, express their, their, their needs and wishes and momentum was 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 much more sort of digitally, um, uh, I guess, well, digitally savvy, but also digitally inspired of trying to mm. think about these kind of swarm-like activities where people would have um, relative, you know, you try and lower the barriers to entry as much as possible so that as many people will kind of come and get involved. The the, the quantity of, 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 of participants um, is is a sign of, of, of some kind of power, which of course is... Questionable. I mean, you know, it's not clear that that is does translate into political power. That's the the difficulty. And I think that you know, in some terms of what Starmer has tried to do with the Labour Party since taking over in in twenty twenty, is partly a sort of direct reversal of that type of thinking, and to recognise actually that politics is 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 not simply about getting as, as as many sort of allies as you possibly can, and actually politics is. Uh, you know, it's a rather more sort of cynical, or you know, as I say towards the end of the essay, more this a sort of more more in touch with the kind of realist political tradition of thinking about the who, who are the allies who have got power. Where do you want to invest your political capital? A, a less exciting vision of politics, and in some ways, the vision of politics that many people wanted to put behind them in in those kind of you know brand years of of twenty thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. I want to ask Will about another horizontal activist movement of the twenty tens, which is the Me Too movement. This was a cultural moment and a social movement which ended up being largely defined by street protests and marches. Was this another example of a leaderless movement that didn't really achieve anything, or was it different? No, I mean, that's interesting. And I think the other thing is, I mean, you could also... I mean, there's obviously been a lot of... um, I was just thinking also about... um, Thinking about uh, racial politics as well um, in recent years. I mean, obviously, 2020 was the the the, the year of the largest street protest the United States has ever seen in in, in relation to in the context of Black Lives Matter. Um, I think what so the other interesting thing about social media to me is that so not only does it provide manifestations of kind of um, affective dispositions that you know are not going to get written about in the Times or get talked about in, in Parliament, and, and yet they 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 have they they now have a media. It also allows for um, a sort of granularity of politics in terms of sort of being able to being able to identify the politics of things that often get kind of overlooked because they are often quite uh, seen to be um, you know somehow sort of too small scale in terms of the sort of I mean there's a lot of sort of you know the, the right gets very mobilised by the by the by the concept of microaggressions and said so, you know it's all just nonsense and so on but ultimately. The concept of microaggression does mean something. It does refer to something, something real. Um, which, which you know, in my own lifetime, I can you know think of things that I might have sort of you know ways I might have behaved sort of you know in a meeting um, kind of fifteen years ago in, that I wouldn't behave you know, in terms of being conscious of who is speaking mm-hmm. and 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 who is not speaking and these sorts of things. These sorts of things. I, I, I'm sure that I, I was oblivious to things that other people in rooms were aware of. 
10, 15 years ago, which I'm now more conscious of. And that's obviously partly to do with my, you know, I, I'm a, I work in university and it's to do with my sort of, you know, sort of demographic profile and that kind of thing. But I think Me Too as well, I don't think Me Too achieved nothing because I think Me Too uh, created a, a public representation of something that previously had not had a public representation. And it wasn't simply, and it wasn't re trying to represent something that needed to be dealt with by Westminster. I mean, I'm sure there are things that could be dealt with by Westminster, but it, ultimately it was a demand at the at a level of sort of granular expressions for a change in relatively granular behaviour in terms of sort of you know in workplaces um, in I mean obviously on public transport you know in terms of you know this sort of thing so I think that's somewhat different because it didn't try to channel it via it wasn't something which was aimed to be channeled via the institutions of of, of representative democracy or the representative media necessarily and so I think that's a it's an interesting one and I think it was what social media was kind of uniquely. Uh, capable of 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 enabling really it was uh, something that everyone everybody knew but nobody had been speaking about or well, not every let's say half the population knew culturally and politically we're in very different times right now and when it comes to labor there is large momentum for an imminent labor government after reflecting on the history of the past 10 years what does will envision for the future of those sorts of mass leftist movements here in the UK yeah, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I think that I think what's going on in relation to Gaza, I think, plays quite a big part, and it, as, as it will play probably a bigger part in the in the United States in relation to, to to the election coming later this year as well. Because I think you know one of the things that um, we you know it's, we, this remains to be seen, but I mean, it's not clear if uh, how many people will be kind of permanently alienated from voting for parties that have refused to condemn Israel over the last um, uh, four months. So, so that's one of the one of the unknowns. I think that. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, as I discussed in the essay, I mean, you know, so Brand turned into this kind of online conspiracy theorist, um, and he's used that to try and defend himself against the allegations that were made in the autumn. Um, and um, you know, he, he gave this interview uh, with Tucker Carlson mm. the other day, which was about you know Carlson saying Brand is being taken down by by the government, and Brand's claiming he's being taken down by big media and big pharma and all this sort of stuff. Significant attempts to control the information space that are so rigorously adhered to and protected that even what you might imagine to be a marginal voice is considered a significant enough threat to warrant coordinated media attacks, expenditure on peculiar clandestine non-government organisations and think tanks that take their money from the military industrial complex from the legacy media who by the way when they're critiquing independent media they got skin in the game they're not able to independently assess your work or my work or the medical opinions of Joe Rogan they have a vested interest in destroying those organisations I mean one of the things I find really one, one of the things I think many of us are sort of trying to grapple with is where does sort of a you know it's impossible to draw the line between a kind of healthy skepticism towards the mainstream and towards elites and there are there are i mean whether the term elites is a helpful one or not but i mean it, it's clear that there are certain look at the look at the donor class for the conservative party the conservative party despite being 20% behind in the in the polls still out you know, is raising more money than the Labour Party, mm. who are I don't know what the odds are at the moment, but but overwhelmingly likely to perform the next government of the country. And yet, the, the you know the, the still these donors are kind of um, pouring money into to the Conservative Party coffers. So there, you know, one some sort of cynicism regarding how this mm. sort of thing works is I think is 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 necessary. But where does that you know? 
who gets called a conspiracy theorist in all of this. Um, so one of the things I think it's not clear, and I think this is a, in some ways a question for, for, for sort of, I guess, digital sociologists, is where has the energy of kind of 2017 era momentum actually gone? I mean, what kinds of online communities has it has it mm. has it gone into? What kinds of belief systems and ideologies has it has it gone into? I mean, there are there are certain manifestations of that period, like you know, Navarra Media seems to be going from strength to strength, and I don't think has become any less kind of mainstream in it in its concerns. It hasn't sort of you know disappeared mm. off into a kind of you know Russell Brand type um, sort of claims about the world, um, and um, seems to have you know a rising number of, of YouTube followers and that sort of thing. So that, that that may be evidence that actually certain aspects of that sort of you know post 2010 uh, millennial left remains sort of. Uh, um, at least concerned about what happens in Westminster in various ways and hasn't just sort of written it off as a conspiracy in the way that Brand has. I don't know, again, this is kind of an empirical question, you know, know, who are most of Brand's listeners? One of the things we learned during the COVID pandemic was that there's a huge amount of sort of um, anti-vax sentiment amongst, you know, a lot of the people who were spreading a lot of anti-vax conspiracy theorists were were sort of wellness influencers and and Mm. sort of yoga instructors. And, And, you know, this generationally um, and demographically, this is probably not the same people who are, you know, necessarily were, were, were sort of supporting Jeremy Corbyn. Who knows? I'm sure there were, were overlaps. There but overlap. I'm yeah. sure there are, I'm sure there <laughs> yeah. are overlaps. But, but I think that... Um, I mean, after all, there are a lot of people who despise Jeremy Corbyn precisely because he, you know, lived in Islington and 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 uh, this sort of thing. But I'm sure, yeah, in terms of the sort of vegetarianism and, and that sort of thing, and and also the anti-war mentality, because of course, being anti-war has become a much more complicated. I mean, Donald Trump is anti-war. I mean, there's sort of it's be, being anti-war has become much more complicated um, since you know in 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 the last decade than it was. Positions on 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 military um, interventions. Uh, have become much more sort of confused, I think, in the in the last decade as well. But so, I mean, ultimately, I, I don't really know the answer to your question. But I think you know, um, clearly, Starmer is not worried about losing um, the support of, of 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 those sort of swarms um, because I think he still looks to 2016 as the, um, as the the Brexit vote as the sort of um, the the moment when the sort of temperature of the country was most kind of acutely taken. Of course, Brexit was a was a was a referendum, not um, a first past the post electoral system but you know it, it led to this kind of obsession with those red wall seats that I think still continues to shape a lot of what Starmer says about you know most things actually Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Alona Ferber and my guest Will Davies You can read Will's essay via the link in the show notes This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 